Robert MacFarlane, Underland First Chamber The way into the Underland is through the riven trunk of an old ash tree. Late summer heatwave, heavy air, bees browsing drowsy over meadow grass, gold of standing corn, green of fresh hayrows, black of rooks on stubble fields. Somewhere, down on lower ground, an unseen fire is burning, its smoke a column. A child drops stones one by one into a metal bucket. Ting, ting, ting. Follow a path through fields, past a hill to the east that is marked by a line of nine round burial barrows, nubbing the land like the bones of a spine. Three horses, in a glinting cloud of flies, stock still but for the swish of a tail, the twitch of a head. Over a stile in a limestone wall and along a stream to a thicketed dip from which grows the ancient ash. Its crown flourishes skywards into weather. Its long boughs lean low around. Its roots reach far underground. Swallows curve and dart, feathers flashing. Martins crisscross the middle air. A swan flies high and south on creaking wings. This upper world is very beautiful. Near the ash's base, its trunk splits into a rough rift just wide enough that a person might slip into the tree's hollow heart and there drop into the dark space that opens below. The rift's edges are smoothed to a shine by those who have gone this way before, passing through the old ash to enter the underland. Beneath the ash tree, a labyrinth unfurls. Down between roots to a passage of stone that deepens steeply into the earth. Colour depletes to greys, browns, black. Cold air pushes past. Above is solid rock utter matter. The surface is scarcely thinkable. The passage is taken, the maze builds. Side rifts curl off. Direction is difficult to keep. Space is behaving strangely, and so too is time. Time moves differently here in the underland. It thickens, pulls, flows, rushes, slows. The passage turns, turns again, narrows, and leads into surprising space. A chamber is entered. Sound now booms, resonates. The walls of the chamber appear bare at first, but then something extraordinary happens. Scenes from the underland start to show themselves on the stone, distant from one another in history, but joined by echoes. In a cave within a scarp of cast, a figure inhales a mouthful of red ochre dust, places its left hand against the cave wall. Fingers spread, thumb out, palm cold on the rock and then blows the ochre hard against the hand's back. There is an explosion of dust, and when the hand is lifted, its ghostly print remains, the stone around having taken the red of the ochre. The hand is shifted, more dust is blown, and another pale outline is left. Calcite will run over these prints, sealing them in. The prints will survive for more than 35,000 years. Signs of what? Of joy? Of warning? Of art? Of life in the darkness? In the shallow, sandy soil of northern Europe, some 6,000 years ago, the body of a young woman, dead in childbirth along with her son, is lowered gently into a grave. Next to her is laid the white wing of a swan. Then onto the wing is placed the body of her son, so that the baby is doubly cradled in death, by the swan's feathers and his mother's arms. A round mound of earth is raised to mark their burial place, the woman, the child, and the white swan's wing. On an island in the Mediterranean, 300 years before the founding of the Roman Empire, a metal worker completes the design of a silver coin. 
The coin's face shows a square labyrinth with a single entrance on its upper edge and a complex path to its centre. The walls of the labyrinth, like the room of the coin, are slightly raised and polished to a sheen. Tooled into the labyrinth's centre is the figure of a creature with the head of a bull and the legs of a man, the minotaur, waiting in darkness for whatever comes next. Six hundred years later, a young woman sits for a portrait painter in Egypt. She has dressed most handsomely for the sitting. She has strong dark eyebrows and wide dark eyes, almost black. Her hair is pulled back from her forehead by a metal band topped with a gold bead, and she wears a golden scarf and brooch. The painter works with hot beeswax, gold leaf, and coloured pigments, laying them onto wood. He is creating the young woman's death image. When she dies, it will be wrapped into the bands of cloth used to mummify her corpse, such that it takes the place of her real face. As her body decays beneath its swaddling, the portrait will remain unaged. It is well to do such things early, when one looks most glowing. Her body will be placed in a necropolis, a city of the dead built at the entrance to a sunken depression of desert, in a buried chamber lined with limestone and covered with quartzite slabs to deter grave robbers, close to vaults that hold the mummified corpses of more than a million ibises. Beneath a plateau in southern Africa, late in the nineteenth century, miners crawl through miles of narrow tunnel. Cut deeper underground here than anywhere else on earth at this time, lugging ore from a sunken reef of gold. Some of these men, who have migrated to the area in their thousands to work, will die soon in rock falls and accidents. More will die slowly of silicosis from breathing the rock dust down there in the killing dark, year after year. Here, the human body is largely disposable in the view of the corporations that own the mine and the markets that drive it. A small, unskilled tool of extraction to be replaced when it fails or wears out. The ore the men bring up is crushed and smelted, and the wealth it yields lines the pockets of shareholders in distant countries. In a cave in the foothills of the Indian Himalayas, not long after partition, young woman meditates sixteen hours a day for seventy-five days. She sits stone still while meditating, save for her mouth, which moves as she murmurs mantras. She emerges most often at night. When it is cloudless, the Milky Way can be seen spilling across the sky above the peaks. She lives on water, drunk with cupped hands from a sacred river, and on forest wild berries and fruits. The mantras, the solitude, and the darkness bring perceptions that are new to her, and she experiences a profound change in her vision. When at last she completes her retreat, she feels vast as the skies, old as the mountains, formless as starlight. Thirty years ago, a boy and his father used a claw of a hammer. To prise up a floorboard in a house they are soon to leave, they have made a jam jar time capsule. Into the jar, the boy has placed objects and messages: the die-cast metal model of a bomber aeroplane, the outline of his left hand traced in red ink on plain paper, a self-description for whoever finds the jar: quite tall for my age, very blond hair, almost white, biggest fear, nuclear war, written in pencil on a notebook page, a stopped watch with luminous hands and dial. Around which he likes to cup his hands to see the numbers glow. He pours a handful of rice into the jar to absorb moisture, screws the jar's brass lid tightly shut, puts it in its hiding place, and nails the floorboards back down. Deep in an extinct volcano, a tunnel network has been bored above a crustal fault known as Ghost Dance. Access drifts incline through tilted strata to level out in a repository zone, organized into emplacement corridors. The intent is to inter high-level nuclear waste in these corridors. 
Radioactive uranium pellets encased in iron, then encased in copper, then buried above the ghost dance fault to pulse out their half-lives for millions of years to come. The timescale of the hazard is such that those responsible for entubing this waste must now face the question of how to communicate its danger to the distant future. This is a risk that will outlast not only the life of its makers, but perhaps also the species of its makers. How to mark this site? How to tell whatever beings will come to this desert place that what is kept in this rock sarcophagus is desperately harmful, is not of value, must never be disturbed? And on a muddy ledge, two and a half miles into the cave system of a mountain in which they have become trapped by flood waters, twelve boys and their football coach sit in utter blackness, conserving the batteries of their phones, waiting day after day to see if the waters will rise or fall, or if by miracle someone will come to rescue them. With each passing hour, the oxygen in their chamber is reduced by their breathing, and carbon dioxide levels increase. Above the mountain, the monsoon clouds build, threatening more rain. Outside the mountain, thousands of rescuers from six countries gather. At first, they do not know if the boys are alive. Then they find handprints in mud on the walls of the chamber two miles into the system. Hope is given. Divers push further and further along the flooded passageways. Nine days after entering the mountain, the boys hear sounds coming from the river that flows past their ledge. Then they see lights glowing in the water. Bubbles seethe up, the lights rise. A man breaks the surface. The boys in their coach blink in the beam of his head torch. One of the boys raises a hand in greeting, and the diver raises his in reply. How many of you? asks the diver. Thirteen, one replies. Many people are coming, says the diver. So these scenes from the underland unfold along the walls of this impossible chamber, down in the labyrinth beneath the riven ash. The same three tasks recur across cultures and epochs, to shelter what is precious, to yield what is valuable, and to dispose of what is harmful. Shelter, memories, precious matter, messages, fragile lives, yield, information, wealth, metaphors, minerals, visions, dispose, waste, trauma, poison, secrets... Into the underland we have long placed that which we fear and wish to lose, and that which we love and wish to save. Descending We know so little of the worlds beneath our feet. Look up on a cloudless night, and you might see the light from a star thousands of trillions of miles away, or pick out the craters left by asteroid strikes on the moon's face. Look down, and your sight stops at topsoil, tarmac, tow. I have rarely felt as far from the human realm as when only ten yards below it, caught in the shining jaws of a limestone bedding plain first formed on the floor of an ancient sea. The underland keeps its secrets well. Only in the last twenty years have ecologists succeeded in tracing the fungal networks that lace woodland soil, joining individual trees into intercommunicating forests, as fungi have been doing for hundreds of millions of years. In China's Shongying province, a cave network explored in 2013 was found to possess its own weather system. Ladders of stacked mist that build in a huge central hall, cold fog that drifts in giant cloud chambers far from the reach of the sun. A thousand feet underground in northern Italy, I sailed into an immense rotunda of stone, cut by a buried river and filled with dunes of black sand. Traversing those dunes on foot was like trudging through a windless desert on a lightless planet. Why go low? It is a counterintuitive action, 
running against the grain of sense and the gradient of the spirit. Deliberately to place something in the underland is almost always a strategy to shield it from easy view. Actively to retrieve something from the underland almost always requires effortful work. The underland's difficulty of access has long made it a means of symbolising what cannot openly be said or seen. Loss, grief, the mind's obscured depths, and what Elaine Scarry calls the deep subterranean fact of physical pain. A long cultural history of abhorrence exists among underground spaces, associating them with the awful darkness inside the world, in Cormac McCarthy's phrase. Fear and disgust are the usual responses to such environments. Dirt, mortality and brutal labour, the dominant connotations. Claustrophobia is surely the sharpest of all common phobias. I have often noticed how claustrophobia, much more so than vertigo, retains its disturbing power even when being experienced indirectly as narrative or description. Hearing stories of confinement below ground, people shift uneasily, step away, look to the light, as if words alone could wall them in. I still remember as a ten-year-old reading the account in Alan Garner's novel The Weird Stone of Brisingarmen of two children escaping danger by descending the mining tunnels that riddle the sandstone outcrop of Elderly Edge in Cheshire. Deep inside the edge, the embrace of the stone becomes so tight that it threatens to trap them. They lay full length, walls, floor and roof fitting them like a second skin. Their heads were turned to one side, for in any other position the roof pressed their mouths into the sand and they could not breathe. The only way to advance was to pull with the fingertips and to push with the toes, since it was impossible to flex their legs at all, and any bending of the elbows threatened to jam the arms helplessly under the body. Then Colin's heels jammed against the roof. He could move neither up nor down, and the rock lip dug into his shins until he cried out with the pain, but he could not move. Those passages took cold grip of my heart, emptied my lungs of air. Rereading them now, I feel the same sensations, but the situation also exerted a powerful narrative traction upon me, and still does. Colin could not move, and I could not stop reading. An aversion to the underland is buried in language. In many of the metaphors we live by, height is celebrated, but depth is despised. To be uplifted is preferable to being depressed or pulled down. Catastrophe literally means a downward turn, cataclysm, a downwards violence. A bias against depth also runs through mainstream conventions of observation and representation. In his book Vertical, Stephen Graham describes the dominance of what he calls the flat tradition of geography and cartography, and the largely horizontal worldview that has resulted. We find it hard to escape the resolutely flat perspectives to which we have become habituated, Graham argues, and he finds this to be a political failure as well as a perceptual one, for it disinclines us to attend to the sunken networks of extraction, exploitation and disposal that support the surface world. Yes, for many reasons we tend to turn away from what lies beneath, but now more than ever we need to understand the underland. Force yourself to see more flatly, or to George Perec in Species of Spaces. Force yourself to see more deeply, I would counter. The underland is vital to the material structures of contemporary existence, as well as to our memories, myths and metaphors. It is a terrain with which we daily reckon and by which we are daily shaped. Yet we are disinclined to recognise the underland's presence in our lives, or to admit its disturbing forms to our imaginations. Our flat perspectives feel increasingly inadequate to the deep worlds we inhabit and to the deep time legacies we are leaving. 
We are presently living through the Anthropocene, an epoch of immense and often frightening change to planetary scale, in which crisis exists not as an ever-deferred future apocalypse, but rather as an ongoing occurrence experienced most severely by the most vulnerable. Time is profoundly out of joint, and so is place. Things that should have stayed buried are rising up unbidden. When confronted by such surfacings, it can be hard to look away, seized by the obscenity of the intrusion. In the Arctic, ancient methane deposits are leaking through windows in the earth opened by melting permafrost. Anthrax spores are being released from reindeer corpses buried in once frozen soil, now exposed by erosion and warmth. In the forests of eastern Siberia, a crater is yawning in the softening ground, swallowing tens of thousands of trees and revealing 200,000-year-old strata. Local Yakutian people refer to it as a doorway to the underworld. Retreating alpine and Himalayan glaciers are yielding the bodies of those engulfed by their ice decades before. Across Britain, recent heat waves have caused the imprints of ancient structures, Roman watchtowers, Neolithic enclosures, to shimmer into view as crop marks visible from above. Aridity as X-ray, the land-submerged past rising up in parched visitation. Where the River Elbe flows through the Czech Republic, summer water levels have recently dropped so far that hunger stones have been uncovered, carved boulders used for centuries to commemorate droughts and warn of their consequences. One of the hunger stones bears the inscription Wenn du mich siehst, dann weine. If you see me, weep. In northwest Greenland, an American Cold War missile base, sealed under the ice cap 50 years ago and containing hundreds of thousands of gallons of chemical contaminants, has begun to move towards the light. The problem, writes the archaeologist, Pora Petersdottir, is not that things become buried deep in strata, but that they endure, outlive us, and come back at us with a force we didn't realise they had, a dark force of sleeping giants roused from their deep-time slumber. Deep time is the chronology of the underland. Deep time is the dizzying expanses of Earth's history that stretch away from the present moment. Deep time is measured in units that humble the human instant, epochs and eons instead of minutes and years. Deep time is kept by stone, ice, stalactites, seabed sediments and the drift of tectonic plates. Deep time opens into the future as well as the past. The Earth will fall dark when the sun exhausts its fuel in around five billion years. We stand with our toes as well as our heels on a brink. There is dangerous comfort to be drawn from deep time. An ethical lotus-eating beckons. What does our behaviour matter when Homo sapiens will have disappeared from the earth in the blink of a geological eye? Viewed from the perspective of a desert or an ocean, human morality looks absurd, crushed to irrelevance. Assertions of value seem futile. A flat ontology entices... All life is equally insignificant in the face of eventual ruin. The extinction of a species or an ecosystem scarcely matters in the context of the planet's cycles of erosion and repair. We should resist such inertial thinking. Indeed, we should urge its opposite. Deep time as a radical perspective, provoking us to action, not apathy. For to think in deep time can be a means not of escaping our troubled present, but rather of reimagining it countermanding its quick greeds and furies with older, slower stories of making and unmaking. At its best, a deep-time awareness might help us see ourselves as part of a web of gift, inheritance and legacy, stretching over millions of years past and millions to come, bringing us to consider what we are leaving behind for the epochs and beings that will follow us. When viewed in deep-time, things come alive that seemed inert. New responsibilities declare themselves, 
a conviviality of being leaps to mind and eye. The world becomes eerily various and vibrant again. Ice breathes, rock has tides, mountains ebb and flow, stone pulses. We live on a restless earth. The oldest of Underland stories concerns a hazardous descent into darkness in order to reach someone or something consigned to the realms of the dead. A variant to the Epic of Gilgamesh, written around 2100 BC in Sumeria, tells of such a descent made by Gilgamesh's servant Enki to the netherworld on behalf of his master to retrieve a lost object. Enki sails through storms of hailstones that strike him like hammers. His boat trembles from the impact of waves that attack it like butting turtles and lions. But still, he reaches the netherworld. There, however, he is promptly imprisoned, only to be freed when the young warrior Utu opens a hole to the surface and carries Enki back out on a lofting breeze. Up in the sunlight, Enki and Gilgamesh embrace, kiss and talk for hours. Enki has not retrieved the lost object, but he has brought back precious news of vanished people. "'Did you see my little stillborn children who never knew existence?' asks Gilgamesh desperately. "'I saw them,' answers Enki. Similar stories recur throughout world myth. Classical literature records numerous instances of what in Greek were known as the catabasis, a descent to the underland, and the nekia, a questioning of ghosts, gods or the dead about the earthly future. Among them, Orpheus's attempt to retrieve his beloved Eurydice from Hades, and Aeneas's voyage, led by the Sibyl, protected by the Golden Bough, to seek counsel with the shade of his father. The recent rescue of the Thai footballers from their lonely chamber, far inside a mountain, was a modern catabasis. The story seized global attention in part because it possessed the power of myth. What these narratives all suggest is something seemingly paradoxical, that darkness might be a medium of vision and that descent may be a movement towards revelation rather than deprivation. Our common verb to understand itself bears an old sense of passing beneath something in order fully to comprehend it. To discover is to reveal by excavation, to descend and bring to light, to fetch up from depth. These are ancient associations. The earliest known works of cave art in Europe, taking the form of painted ladders, dots and hand stencils on the walls of Spanish caves, have been dated to around 65,000 years ago, some 20,000 years before Homo sapiens are believed to have first arrived in Europe from Africa. Neanderthal artists left these images, Long before anatomically modern humans reached what is now Spain, writes one of the archaeologists responsible for the dating for this art, people were making journeys into the darkness. Underland is a story of journeys into darkness and of descents made in search of knowledge. It moves over its course from the dark matter formed at the universe's birth to the nuclear futures of an Anthropocene to come. During the deep time voyage undertaken between those two remote points, the line about which the telling folds is the ever-moving present. Across its chapters, in keeping with its subject, extends a subsurface network of echoes, patterns and connections. For more than 15 years now, I have been writing about the relationships between landscape and the human heart. What began as a wish to solve a personal mystery, why I was so drawn to mountains as a young man that I was, at times, ready to die for the love of them, has unfolded into a project of deep mapping, carried out over five books and around 2,000 pages. From the icy summits of the world's highest peaks, I have followed a downward trajectory to what must surely be a terminus, exploring the stories of place that lie beneath the surface. The descent beckons as the ascent beckoned, wrote William Carlos Williams in a late poem. 
It has taken me until the second half of my life to understand something of what Williams meant. In the Underland, I have seen things I hope I will never forget, and things I wish I had never witnessed. What I thought would be my least human book has become, to my surprise, my most communal. If the image at the centre of much that I have written before is that of the walker's placed and lifted foot, the image at the heart of these pages is that of the opened hand, extended in greeting, compassion or the making of a mark. I have for some time now been haunted by the Sami vision of the underland as a perfect inversion of the human realm, with the ground always a mirror line, such that the feet of the dead, who must walk upside down, touch those of the living, who stand upright. The intimacy of that posture is moving to me, the dead and the living standing soul to soul. Seeing photographs of the early handmarks left on the cave walls of Maltreviso, Lascaux or Sulawesi, I imagine laying my own palm precisely against the outline left by those unknown makers. I imagine, too, feeling a warm hand pressing through from within the cold rock, meeting mine fingertip to fingertip in open-handed encounter across time. Shortly before beginning the journeys recounted here, I was given two objects. Each came with a request, and it was a condition of the gift of these objects that I agreed to fulfil those requests. The first of the objects is a double-cast bronze casket the size of a swan's egg, which sits heavy in the hand. It is a kist, and what it contains is toxic. Its maker wrote his demons down on a sheet of paper, his hatreds, fears and losses, the pain he had inflicted on others, and the pain others had inflicted on him, all that was worst in his mind. Then he burned the paper and sealed the ashes inside the casket. Then he double-cast the casket giving it a second layer of bronze to increase the strength of the containment. That outer layer of bronze became pitted and encrusted in the process of its casting, such that it seemed to resemble either the surface of a planet or the weather above it. Then he drove four iron nails through the casket centre, cutting off their ends and filing them flush. It is an exceptionally powerful object, which possesses a ritual intensity of creation. It could have been fashioned at any point in the past 2,500 years, but it was made only recently. I was given the casket on the condition that I disposed of it in the deepest or most secure underland site that I reached, a place from which it could never return. The second of the objects is an owl cut from a slice of whalebone. It is a talisman, and what it connotes is magic. The minke whale from which the owl was taken had washed up dead on the shoreline of a Hebridean island. One of its rib bones was smoothed into cross-sections, each less than half an inch thick and six inches high. One of those cross-sections was then cut into the form of an owl with four bold strokes of a blade, two strokes for the eyes and two for the wing lines. It is an exceptionally beautiful object which possesses an ice-age simplicity of making. It could have been fashioned at any point in the past 20,000 years, but it was made only recently. I was given the owl on the condition that I carried it with me at all times in the underland to help me see in the dark. <laughs> 